I think there is something so special between the listener and the other side of the microphone in the studio. Very special. I don't feel I'm talking to two men now. I feel I'm talking to a whole world. All of the people that you have created for me because of what you're doing. I didn't want to go back. I wanted to go forward. I felt that the dialogue patterns of 74, that the recording techniques of 74, that the whole style of relationship between actor and spoken word is different in 74, and it is. Tuesday, January 8th, 1974. It's a cold night in Brooklyn, New York. There's snow in the forecast. We're driving north on Shore Road towards the Belt Parkway in a 1973 Ford Maverick. Thanks to the oil crisis, smaller cars like the Maverick are becoming increasingly popular. On January 2nd, President Nixon signed a law lowering the maximum speed limit on U.S. highways to 55 miles per hour. It conserved gasoline during the embargo. Highway fatalities dropped 23% over the next year. The limit remained in effect for 13 years. Unfortunately for Nixon, the Watergate scandal wouldn't go away. Citing executive privilege, on January 4th, Nixon refused to surrender over 500 subpoenaed tapes to the Watergate committee. On this night, Tuesday, January 8th, John Chancellor signed on with news and updates from NBC. This is NBC Nightly News, Tuesday, January 8th. Reported by John Chancellor with David Brinkley's journal. Good evening. Late today, the White House issued two white papers giving the president's side in the controversies involving contributions from dairymen and from the International Telephone and Telegraph Corporation. Those cases have been known as the Milk Fund, in which charges have been made that contributions from the dairymen resulted in an increase in the support price for dairy products. And the ITT case, in which charges have been made that the administration gave ITT preferential treatment in an antitrust matter in return for pledges of large contributions. The White House, white papers, say these charges are utterly false. The two white papers, one of them 17 pages long, were released just before this program went on the air. Tomorrow we'll have more details of the president's arguments in his defense. On this day, New York City instituted measures against gas shortage abuse. In this country, New York City has been one of the areas hardest hit by the gasoline shortage. Long lines of cars waiting for gas are commonplace. With the shortage have come abuses. Today, New York City imposed emergency measures aimed at stopping price gouging and preferential treatment for customers willing to pay for it. Robert Hager reports. Today, I'm 
I'm announcing two... At a news conference, city officials said gas stations would have to stop giving preferential treatment to regular customers. Anyone who drives up to the pumps must be treated equally, and clear signs must be posted if there is no gas or if sales are limited. Until now, gas stations did pretty much what they pleased. There was a no gas sign at this station in Queens today, but gas was being pumped. The attendant said he was selling up to $3 worth of gas to anyone. But the customer being served here got more than $7 worth. Another station had a no gas sign, but one car was sitting by the pumps, the driver obviously expecting to get gas. When the station manager saw us filming, the no gas sign came down. A few stations, such as this one in the Bronx, openly advertise the fact that they are limiting sales to regular customers. It's practices like this the city wants to stop, but the new regulations may run into legal problems. Agents of New York City's Department of Consumer Affairs plan to test the enforceability of their new regulations almost immediately. They'll head out Thursday morning to begin issuing citations to service stations in violation with threatened fines of up to $350 for each offense. Robert Hager, NBC News, New York. The day after this broadcast, representatives from the 12 member nations of the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries finished a meeting in Geneva, Switzerland. They voted for a three-month freeze on oil prices. The Iranian finance minister, Jamshid Amusgar, said today in Geneva that the oil exporting countries are willing to keep prices down if the oil importers will keep their profits down. In that connection, Amusgar noted that the increased strength of the American dollar abroad probably will result in a 6% drop in the cost to oil companies of foreign oil. At San Clemente, the White House said President Nixon is considering a Washington conference of oil-producing and consuming countries. The aim would be to develop a common policy on oil production and pricing. And in Washington, Vice President Ford warned of what might happen if the Arabs keep their oil policies of embargo and production cuts. Talk about retaliation against the Arab oil countries today brought a renewed threat by Saudi Arabia to blow up its own oil fields in the event of military intervention. And the Damascus State Radio said that all the Arab countries are prepared to follow suit if any military action is taken. But this isn't why we're here. As Mutual Broadcasting was getting back into radio drama with the Zero Hour, longtime director Hyman Brown finally convinced CBS to give him a nightly hour of time to produce new eerie radio plays. Tonight, we'll go back to January 1974 and study how this moment in time came to be. And now for the golden age of radio, Dick Bertel. Good evening. Our program is coming to you from New York tonight. We're in the uh, offices of one of the biggest producers of radio of the past and soon to be radio of the future. Ed Corcoran, our guest, is a giant in our industry. Yes, Dick, one of the most innovative producers of all time, and he gave us such shows as Inner Sanctum Mysteries, Grand Central Station, The Thin Man, Nero Wolf, and you could go on the rest of the half hour just uh, giving you all these shows, Dick, but here he is. Dick, shake hands with Hyman Brown. Hyman Brown, it's a pleasure to meet you and to welcome you to the golden age of radio. I'm happy to be a part of it and enjoy meeting both of you and talking about the most wonderful time of my life, the years I spent 
producing, creating, and directing radio drama. You know, I, I think perhaps this can be the most exciting interview we've conducted on the program because it's going to enable us to look ahead for the first time. We've been on the air for over three years and we've had to talk about the 30s and the 40s and the early 50s when radio disappeared from the scene. But now, radio, thanks to you and CBS, is coming back. And it's coming back in such form, with such virility, with such excitement, that I myself am almost overwhelmed by what it portends for the future. Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode 147. My name is James Scully. Tonight on Breaking Walls, we go into the studio with Hyman Brown for the CBS radio drama relaunch in 1974. If this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, welcome to the show. You can find this series on every podcasting platform and at thewallbreakers.com. Tonight's opening song is harpist Elizabeth Hainan's beautiful rendition of Amid Flowers, Beside the River, Under a Spring Moon. It's a perfect dreamlike composition for tonight's trip back in time. You can hear this song on her album, Home, Works for Solo Harp. Join the Breaking Walls Facebook group to keep in touch with news, snippets, photos, and other additions to the podcast at facebook.com slash groups slash the wallbreakers. And the first eight chapters of Burning Gotham are out everywhere you can get a podcast and at burninggotham.com. It was a 2022 Tribeca Film Festival audio selection. You can also support these shows for as little as $1 per month at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. The idea was one of many that I had in my heart and in my gut for the last five, six, eight years. And I've been trying with networks and with agencies to make them realize that radio drama is one of the most unique forms of entertainment in the world of theater, in the world of communication. And they somehow didn't respond to me. You must know from all that happens on your program and the responses you get Mm -hmm. that radio drama offers a listener something which they could not conceivably get in theater, in motion pictures, or in television. Your imagination, you, yourself, your fantasy, comes to the spoken word and you create a unique form of identification, a unique relationship to what's happening, and it enhances all. I call it color radio. You can do anything you want with your imagination once I lead you to the point of exercising that imagination. That was the voice of famed New York-based director Hyman Brown. In January 1974, he was 63 years old, having been on the air since the age of 18. It all began much before 1933 because in 1929, I was on the air Saturday mornings as part of a kind of almost high school, college stunt so that I could write something for the school paper. I was doing Jewish dialect things on NBC in the morning 
I'd been on two weeks when I got a phone call from up in the Bronx, and a woman on the phone says, my name is Gertrude Berg, and I got a series called The Rise of Molly Goldberg. Could you come and meet with me? She said, I like the way you do Jewish dialect. I've got a story about a Jewish woman. You could be the salesman and the, um, play the part of Jake, maybe, the old man. I was all of some teenage. At any rate, she would be Molly and write the scripts. And sure enough, I sold it in 1929 to NBC, to Phillips Carlin. Brown is noted for having created Bulldog Drummond, Grand Central Station, Dick Tracy, and Inner Sanctum Mysteries. How many shows were you doing a week? I did as many as four and five shows a day. I did Terry and the Pirates and Dick Tracy back to back. And early in the day, I would do David Harum. And then I would do a half hour of Grand Central Station and so on. I would say that somewhere between 35 and 40,000 broadcasts passed through my hands. Lipton Tea and Lipton Soup present Inner Sanctum Mysteries. When I was doing Dick Tracy, for instance, we had a door that you simply couldn't use except once in a blue Sunday because it creaked. The door was just a bad door. We considered it. It creaked, and oh, whenever we found it in the control room or in the studio, I'd hit the ceiling. And then suddenly it dawned on me, maybe there's some very, very good things about something that's very, very bad. And that creak impressed itself on me, and I said, would you believe it, fellas? That creak's going to be the star of the show. And that's how the creaking door happened. And when I sold it to Carter's Little Liver Pills, I had been doing Grand Central Station. That was for Lambert Pharmaceutical. And the man who owned Carter's was very close to the Lambert Pharmaceutical people because they were both drug houses. And he called me one morning and he said, I play golf with whoever runs and owns Listerine. I would like a show like that. What have you got? So I came down with The Creaking Door and I came down with Bulldog Drummond and I came down with, I figured the first night of works, I would do dress rehearsal because after all, we'd be there the night before the show opened. (laughs) So he listened to all three shows, and he said, I like that mystery series, but I don't like the title, The Creaking Door. I said, what's wrong with The Creaking Door? I don't know. He said, did you have any other titles? Well, with a kind of tongue-in-cheek, I had no other title at that moment. They were down on Park Row, way, way downtown, and I'd gone down on the subway that morning, And in back of the New Yorker magazine, there was always a one-column ad for a group of detective stories published by Simon & Schuster called Inner Sanctum Detective Stories. So I said, how about Inner Sanctum? He said, that might be better. I didn't know what the relationship Then I first had to go to Simon & Schuster and make some kind of an arrangement with them to use the two or three words that belonged to them. But the creak was mine. I had created that. That's how the creaking door happened. Brown was itching for the chance to create new dramatic radio. The need to bring back radio drama was in me. Radio had become music and news and a service rather than an entertainment. Fortunately, Sam Diggs, who is the president of CBS Radio, 
and I, we were old friends, and we would kick this around at lunch once or twice every six or eight months. And then about a year or a year and a half ago, when I came to him with this idea of seven nights a week to create a habit once again, so that the station that carries the drama can truly say, we're the drama station. Stations, as you know today, radio stations, are programs. A station plays a particular kind of thing. It's either all news or all rock. Here we are, back with something where the station can say, we are the drama station. You've got to give them a reason for this. CBS executive Sam Diggs was 57 and close friends with Brown. But the CBS network board could perhaps have been a harder sell for a program that was to air every night of the week. I was invited to come down to Saramar Beach to address the CBS affiliate board. Now this is a group of 15 station owners, managers, who represent the 260 network stations. They make the decisions, they try to think for the others, and usually they set the pattern. I came in, they didn't expect me, and I spoke to these 15 hard, tough, cynical men who have to make a dollar and have to run a station that's number one in their market. And every single one of them, for the first time in the history of the affiliate board, said, we'll carry it. Well, with that as, as a stimulus, we then decided we would go out and try it on other people. We went to KMOX, we went to WCCO, and New York City, uh, CBS is all news. We went to WOR. Everybody said, we'll carry this. We then went to the advertising people and tried to, to make them understand that there is an audience out there. The numbers don't show it. And they responded. The name of the show is the CBS Radio Mystery Theater. Mystery is a flexible word. It's the macabre, the suspense, the eerie, the unexplained, the unseen. We'll do ESP kind of things, the occult stuff that deals with outer space, maybe some science fiction, but no detective stories. I don't want to get into, um, have to bog down into explanations and detective mysteries. I don't care if I don't explain to you the phenomena that we're dealing with. They're just tight, good mystery suspense stories. We broke the mold, literally. That's the only way to bring something back. We're going to be on the air seven nights a week with a 53-minute complete mystery drama each night. Seven nights a week. Never in the history of radio broadcasting did anybody attempt to do a series seven nights a week. CBS hadn't produced any dramatic shows since September of 1962. Over the 11 years since, Numerous technological advancements have been made. Well, first off, the whole production technique has changed. I'll be recording on equipment that didn't exist 20 years ago. I have a 16-channel console. I'll only use one or two channels, but I have 16 channels. The whole world of sound has changed. We can now put sound into cartridges. You don't have to spot a record. The cartridge hits the sound right on the button, the, the gunshot. We can make continuous loops now of street noises, of crowds, of backgrounds of all kinds, so that sound is better. All my music 
will be on cartridges. So I have no needle scratches. I have no surface noises to contend with. And then, of course, the whole world of tape recording changes. My actor, if he flubs a line, we stop, go back four speeches, and I edit it out afterwards. I don't like uh, the quality of the, uh, let's say, the, the railroad background. I add some more sounds to it when I re-record afterward. Even acting styles, the intensity of acting, the relationship of my actors one to the other, and the relationship of them to me as a director, that's changed in the last 20 years. Uh, the relationships of people in general has changed. Basically, we remain the same. I Love You is still as potent as it was 10,000 years ago. In order to produce a show that was to air every night of the week, a dedicated studio would be developed. They used Studio G on the sixth floor of the old CBS radio annex on East 52nd Street in New York. We're taking one of the large studios that is on 52nd Street that used to be part of the CBS radio setup. We're changing it around, putting in these sound effect consoles and cartridge machines that I've spoken of. The whole setup will be for me for 1974. Nobody else will use the studio. How could they? I've got to be in there to make seven shows a week. How about the writers? Are you going to go back to the old stable or are you going to develop new writers for this concept? Hi. Two things are going to happen. I definitely want to develop new writers. It's very, very important and very necessary. Right from your area, the O'Neill Workshop, George White, who is the president of the O'Neill Workshop, oh, has been sure. in to see me. Uh, we've spoken. He has some four, five hundred people there. I hope to set up a seminar on radio writing when they hold the workshop next May. He has given me a list of people who might be interested, and we will try to work with them. To get off the ground, I have fortunately been able to fall back on a group of wonderful, wonderful writers who are trained and experienced and have all been doing television and novels and movies and everything under the sun and theater, but are so happy for the opportunity to come back to radio writing. I have George Lothar, I have Henry Slazar, I have Sam Dan, Sidney Sloan, who for years wrote The Shadow, Murray Burnett, who for years did True Detective, and Marlena Dietrich. These are some of the people whom I've been able to revive, in a sense, with very little effort, to come back and write. The writers would be paid $350 per script. That's a little more than $2,000 today. As Hyman Brown mentioned, in New York City, CBS aired news, so Mutual Broadcasting's flagship WOR picked up the series just one month after Mutual began airing the Zero Hour. Acting talent would work for SAG-AFTRA scale. Actor E.G. Marshall was tabbed to be the host. In 1973, Marshall was known for his prominent role in the 1957 film 12 Angry Men and on TV's The Defenders. As a host, he harkened back to the golden age of radio when characters such as The Man in Black, The Whistler, The Mysterious Traveler, and Raymond hosted macabre programs. High Brown has always had the idea. High Brown was always sorry to see television take over. When was the proper time for it? Now, the proper time is now because it's being done, so I'm happy that it is being done now. I don't know what situation exists today for it that did not exist five years ago. I don't know, maybe sociologists can figure those things out when they're making these study of ethnographic populations and so forth. But I don't think the storytelling thing has ever left us. Every time you take your child to bed or you go someplace, I'm going to say, read us a story, read us a story. The CBS Radio Mystery Theater would debut on Sunday, January 6, 1974,
with Agnes Moorhead, starring in The Old Ones Are Hard to Kill. 218 stations carried the series, including 21, which were not CBS affiliates. And now, here's Act One of The Old Ones Are Hard to Kill. It begins with a stethoscope, a blood pressure reading, an electrocardiogram, and an altogether satisfying report on the health of Mrs. Ada Canby. Hmm. Well, can't see a thing to complain about, Ada. That little congestion you had last time is all cleared up. All in all, I'd say you're doing fine. For a woman my age, you mean. <laughs> <laughs> the older the chicken, the tougher it is to kill. <laughs> That's what my grandmother used to tell me, and she lived to be 98. Mm-hmm. Speaking of relatives, you uh, see much of Walter. My grandson? Oh, the usual once-a-year visit. And he always comes up with the same complaint. What's that? That I shouldn't be living all alone. That big house of yours must get pretty lonely sometimes. Well, the truth is, Dr. George, I'm not alone there. You're not? I decided to take in the border last month. Really? I haven't written Walter about it. I'm sure he'd object to my taking in a stranger, but there's really nothing wrong with Mr. Paulson, except his health, maybe. His health? What's wrong with him? Oh, the poor man's had a terrible cold for the past two weeks. Well, let me do a thing for him, though. Well, now, where did you meet this Mr. Paulson? He answered the ad I ran. He's just back from South America. Been living in Brazil for years. He's a very nice gentleman, really. He keeps himself and tends his birds. He has the loveliest blue parakeets. You can hear them chirping all over the house. Oh, it's the friendliest sound. Well, I, uh, I don't see anything wrong with what you're doing, Ada. Just make sure you don't go and catch the man's cold. Well, there's not much chance of that. The poor man hardly ever leaves his room. Well, how much do I owe you? I'll send you the bill. I'm sure you'll forget all about it. <laughs> <laughs> Promise me you'll send it. 